0: What's up everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Make History Dope Again. Uh, Today we are doing part two of spotlight number nine. Um, Spotlight number nine is looking at the history of uh, Indian boarding schools and Native American attitudes towards those schools. So if you haven't checked out uh, part one, please do that um, and then come back and join us for part two. Um, As always, thank you guys for tuning in and helping Make History Dope Again.
1: guys well hello long time no see
0: glad to be back in the uh in the hot seat two weeks already
1: Two yeah, Two time really flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. It's, uh, <laughs> we're just kidding, guys. We we broke the third wall last time, and uh, so we'll be honest. We we definitely just it's just the same conversation <laughs> from two weeks ago, uh, from part one, spotlight one, spotlight number nine, part one, and uh, we're just kind of finishing it here. But you're gonna hear this two weeks later, and so if you uh, again you heard it in the intro, but you've not heard part one. Part one was great.
2: You need to go listen to it, uh, Jonathan. Um, like no offense to. You Andrew, no, but I think Jonathan might be our best researcher. Jonathan is our best researcher. Uh, like he uh, goes and he goes in, and so we made it last maybe a little, little bit too long because we kept asking questions because the stuff was so good. But I think that just is a testament to how awesome your context was.
1: Yeah, it was great, and so you know, I I, I really loved because we you know we've we've talked with all our various projects and your master thesis and like you said back to the Georgie Wash episode. Our our, uh, our first episode we, we've talked a lot about Native American yeah. culture and and, and intera- interactions with Anglo culture um, and and you did a great job last time of really looking at the kind of was it 1879 yeah the first uh carlisle yeah carlisle uh industrial school is that right
0: something like that. something like that yeah (laughs) um
1: it's a long title all right a lot of words um but but the first of these assimilation based uh native american boarding schools where they're they're taken hundreds of miles from their their tribes uh and oftentimes they're not allowed to go home you know they're they're stripped of their culture they have to have to wear you know anglo clothes they have to pick an anglo name from a chalkboard um, you know, and, um, really just the effects and the experience of that. Um, and I, th- I thought, I thought it was such a great look at that. And I think oftentimes we just think of Carlisle yeah. and you talked about, um, one that's close to us in Lawrence, Kansas, Haskell. Yeah. Right. And, and you mentioned how this was not just unique to those two schools. There were hundreds of these, these boarding schools across the United States. Um, and I think it's such a critical piece, you know, everyone in this country at one point has gone to school. And so we, we all have that vision of what school was like for us. And to imagine that, that such a, a foundational thing was used to strip them of their identities. uh, I think is really, it really resonates, I think with people.
2: Yeah. I think you gave a lot of good context for like, this is such a transformative time in the United States history, um, because it's after the civil war. The United States is kind of back together as a union and they're needing to like refine its purpose through a new wave of manifest destiny, imperialism. This is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the beginnings of another era of imperialism we're going to see for the United States and it's happening in the continent, but also it's going to be happening in the Pacific as well. You know, there's industrialization happening. So there's so many things happening that just kind of give some context and help explain maybe why these things are occurring at these schools
0: absolutely so in part one we we did we looked at the context of these schools as you guys uh beautifully you know went over the idea of assimilation you know making native peoples like mainstream society that was the driving force remember richard pratt's quote kill the indian save the man Mm And so what today's episode is going to focus on is we're going to look at the attitudes of those native peoples, the students, the parents, the overall community, Mm -hmm. how did they respond to this assimilation education? Mm -hmm. And therefore, how did they adapt to it? How did they change? How did they take charge of it? Take the power back. Absolutely. Because we know today, you know, some of these schools exist um, either as government boarding schools um, but you'll also see today that some of these schools have evolved into universities like 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 haskell's a four-year
1: fully accredited university yeah Yeah.
0: specifically for native people so there's some big change that we're going to talk about today uh, in regards to indian education during the 20th century um so you guys ready to dive in
2: let's do it man Let's let's dive in make it dope again
0: all right so um let's start with looking at native attitudes uh, towards the boarding schools. And we're gonna look at this period of 1884 where Haskell was created to about 1928. Um, And I'm gonna start with uh, a man named David Troyer who uh, Andrew and I, we we read one of his books in our class. Um, It's a New York Times bestseller called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present. present. Um, It is a fantastic book which covers uh, Native American history. Uh, well, David Troyer, he writes about the difficulty of examining the true feelings and attitudes of Native peoples uh, in regards to the boarding schools. Um, because of the pain of both the parents and the children, um, he says sometimes it's hidden behind the rhetoric of progress.
2: Sure. Hmm. Sure. And in
0: the name so of uh, he, he writes quite often that um, there were some Indian leaders who supported the schools, as I mentioned uh, in part one, because they recognized that assimilation, the writing was on the wall, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of hope of survival, they knew that assimilation uh, was was the movement forward. However, the separation of families for great extents of time was still painful and traumatic. Um, and so, what I want to do first is I want to look at um, I want to look at how parents responded
1: to the movement mm. now this yeah. would be in this would be the the initial movement the initial movement okay. from
0: the you know 1884 to 1928 okay yeah and so the majority of parents opposed uh, native boarding schools and they actively sought to prevent it um you know one reason why there was support for the on reservation schools is because the children would still be close to home yeah but now. the the priority of the government boarding schools was to take them away Mm. you know to get rid of the uh, threats of native environments influencing the education process right and so some of the ways that parents responded was uh, they they removed their families from the villages for several weeks when they knew that um, the officials were coming to round up students so they oh, would just okay. get up and leave. They'd go hide. Wow. They would go hide. Physically go hide. Wow. Um, others offered orphans. Like, they would just find orphans and they would offer those and send them instead.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
0: for families that had multiple children, sometimes they had to negotiate and bargain. Sending one child oh my over sending them all. So I Can mean, you imagine, imagine? As a parent, you know, hmm. having to choose one child. Oh, my God. How
1: do you do? And then you have to think, like, do you pick the one who you think is maybe the strongest you know the most resilient you know um
2: or the one who's going to simulate the maybe the the easiest or the smoothest how do you make that decision i don't know how you
1: quantify that right i don't know if you i don't know if you do now now uh, because they so this we talked about last time how uh, this this coincides with like native lands no longer being sovereign right Mm -hmm. Basically, their 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 livelihood and their lives is ran through what becomes the Bureau of Indian Affairs, right? Absolutely, in extension of the federal government, right? I mean, Native Americans can't even vote at this time, nope. right? Which is weird because like they're not they've been they've been stripped of their their sovereignty to their own nations, at least in the eyes of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. But they're also not U.S. citizens. And so I'm curious, like, what ability do they have to really say no? I guess just physically moving, like you said. Other
0: than just avoiding, you know, trying to relocate. As you mentioned, um, and and I'll touch on it a little bit, but like the Dawes Act. Yeah. uh, I believe that's 1884. Yeah. So right the same year that, that Haskell was created. And the Dawes Act is a very revolutionary, you know, piece of legislation in Native American affairs where basically it strips the the tribal community right mm-hmm. it reallocates uh, tribal land for individual settlement right yeah. and so and I, I, you know one aspect of it was if if Native people decided to take an allotment they were in some cases granted citizenship mm-hmm. uh, but still that was kind of like second class citizenship I, I think it's
1: 1924 the Snyder Bill Snyder Law I think is when all all, mm-hmm. all are just blanket statement and then because they're naturalized citizens, the, the 15th Amendment, right to vote would, yeah. would apply to them. Um, but other than that, it, it's only if you, you know, assimilate, play, through. play ball, yeah. right? Yeah, it's absolutely. A, that's kind of the
0: definition of what, what's the the quid pro quo, right? Yeah. Like, tit for tat, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. So, so there's not a lot of say that native parents have um, other than, you know, trying to negotiate or s- simply just remove themselves. And even that was difficult because of the use of force against Native families. Uh, the mm-hmm. use of police force, sure. on well, reservations. Well, I mean that—that's
1: how Sitting Bull, Sitting Bull gets killed. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, on on
0: reservation land. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see jailing. You know, throwing families in jail, and probably the most significant, the restriction of rations. The government wow. would restrict rations to families who would refuse to send children to boarding schools, which remember those rations are super important um, to these families on the reservations because, you know, the Buffalo has been basically eradicated, you know, there's not a lot of sources of
2: of food for them. Reservation land is not um, fruitful land. Like in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, the good land has been kept by, the united states government and so reservation land it's not you know food is not abundant absolutely super reliant on those rations
1: yeah so that's that's so tragic dude i mean and that's i mean that that really brings back in that like cultural destruction piece you know that we talked about in in many of our episodes but like i mean like literally like you know unless you send one of your kids you're gonna starve you know um and it's not like you're a sovereign nation and can just kick out these people. It's no, they they run your destiny now. Absolutely. So
0: tragic. Yeah. They they have very little options. There's no choice. So, uh, reluctantly, you know, thousands of parents watch their children go hundreds of miles away to be educated by the U S government. Um, but that's not the end. You know, there are parents who are going to fight back. Uh, some of the ways they do this is by withdrawing students from the school. Okay. Uh, in some cases they were able to do that uh but predominantly they encouraged runaways they encouraged their students mm. their children to run away from the schools which uh we'll talk about is going to be the most common method of protest for students mm. um you even see some parents petitioning washington um you okay. know, the federal government to do something um to make the schools better to provide those uh those parental rights and enforce those um and another way for, for students that were able to go home during the summers, right. um, you see parents reinforcing those tribal cultures, okay. mm-hmm. you know, going real hard on you know, yeah. the identity, the history to combat, to combat this assimilation that had occurred during the terms. So there,
1: there, there has to be really hard for these children because they have kind of a foot in both worlds and the worlds are, are competing with each other right and 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 each world is telling you that the other world is wrong and 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 bad and and then also you're just a kid you're also just dealing with adolescence and (laughs) growing up and uh you know all of those things and so i i have to imagine that's a very um
0: confusing place to be Hmm. absolutely um and so for me as i was learning this my question was why why you know why is there this resentment um to send the children to the schools it seems like obvious you know the way that they're being treated but i wanted to know more and there's a uh, a pueblo anthropologist and linguist named edward p dozier um, who writes about this and he argues that the answer was the result of the difference between forced and permissive acculturation okay and so he says that when cultures can interchange without force the result is a new cultural whole where the cultural traits of both groups are fused harmoniously in both meaning and form.
1: So, like, uh, you think of like the classic, like, is it a melting pot or a fruit salad? Absolutely. Right? Okay.
0: But think about the history of the United States and indigenous people. Yeah. What's the main ingredient? Force. Right. Absolutely. Everything mm. has been forced.
1: Violence or the predication
0: of violence. Right. And so this history of force in U.S. and indigenous relations was such a common feature that there was no way for these groups to fuse harmoniously okay there's always going to be this uh resentment which i thought was brilliant and so yeah. finding that really helped me understand and put into words you know that there's regardless of what was going to happen there was going to be resentment there was going to be this this pushback well, we, we always
1: we, we, we always preach how important context is i mean it's, but it's like <laughs> the, how this goes is going to you have to look at to zoom out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And how do we get to this point? You've right? got the
0: history of removal, right. relocation, assimilation. All of that has created uh, the spark of resistance, you know, and, and the families know that the children are being used for child labor. They know that they're being, you know, dressed, haircuts, names being changed, uh, being punished for using their, their languages. So the, so the parents and the families and the communities are aware of this. Um, and a big driving wedge between the parents and the schools has to be the requirement to keep children away from them. You Absolutely. Know, you, when you think about children being away for three to five years, that's going to create a lot of resentment towards, well, and, the, and, towards and, the schools.
1: And, and not just with the schools, but potentially you're, you're setting up conflict between the parent and the, the kid, mm-hmm. you know? Because, um, you know, kids are, are sponges, you know, and, and they're, they're going to
0: really... Take on all these things that are that are being pushed on them at school, right? And absolutely, then, and there, and, and I do need to note that there are students who report, you know, enjoying their time sure. at Haskell school, sure, and, I, and and other schools, and I think that predominantly comes down back to that pan-Indian identity, absolutely, of just being able, just like all students, when right. you ask them, what do you do, enjoy about school? It's the social, right? It's the build, it's the friends, the building of those communities um, and those lifelong relationships. So there is you know, some enjoyment in that, but overall the experiences that they faced, you know, were, were pretty traumatic. Absolutely. And so, uh, parents are forced to kind of, you know, watch their kids go. And, um, pl- some of them, as we mentioned, planted seeds of student, uh, resistance. And so student resistance was common, most, uh, predominantly in the form of, uh, of runaways. Um, unfortunately in my research, I learned that, uh, the experience was so traumatic that the constant sound of grieving children was a normalized part. Uh, you know, I think it was Luther Standing Bear <laughs> wow. who, who mentioned, like, you know, this was pretty common to hear, especially the younger children first arriving to just constantly be crying. You know, it just became background noise that they became numb to.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm guessing for the, the faculty and staff, I mean, there has to be a certain level of them believing in this this cause that they're very much tying to we're helping them they might not Mm -hmm. know it but we are helping them right um and but we also know that in these in traumatic vacuums like this where where bad stuff is happening there's a certain level of i'm just doing my job yeah right and i mean not to compare everything to hitler right but that was the common thing in 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 concentration camps is for for the nazi guards i'm just doing my job yeah right and so you have to imagine like Yeah, I'm just, I, I, was just, I, I was told we had, they, had to, they had to cut their hair and, you know, change their name. And so I'm just doing my job, you know. Absolutely. Very easy to kind of justify and
0: pass that off. So running away was the most common form of, uh, of student resistance. An example, 1906, a young man named Isaac Plentyhoops, a uh, student at Haskell, decided to run away. Um, and he, he traveled 100 miles Wow. to St. Joseph, Missouri, oh which, goodness. you know, today, 100 miles doesn't seem that long, but I mean, <laughs> when you think about someone running away,
2: that's, uh, that's, if you're moving fast, you can move 20 miles in hour. So, he
0: moved for, he, he went from Haskell to St. Mm-hmm. Joe? Yeah, he went oh from Lawrence, gosh. Kansas to St. Joseph, Missouri. I've done that drive. Yeah. <laughs> so, in 1906, so, you know, super early, and he, he writes a letter to his father, which explains his exodus. Um, and he mentions that he ran away for a dislike of the food. I'm sure there was more to it sure. than just a dislike for the food. Sure. Um, but he shares that he has employment in Missouri. Um, oh, but, okay. he, but he's, he's a teenage it. boy. You know, think about right. it. He's a young teenage boy. Um, and in his letter, he mentions a desire for his father to send money to him to come back home. Mm. So although he finds himself in a, in a community far away, with employment there's still that desire to go home absolutely and so uh once again it shows that the separation between the communities is a driving force is is that wedge between the schools and the communities now are there examples that you came across where
1: students did make it home yeah and were they did did because there's 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 federal government officials Mm -hmm. there too so i have to imagine sometimes they were returned
0: yeah, I believe so. It's, you know, sometimes they were returned. Uh, I, I think if, you know, if you were a repeat offender, uh, offender, I think sometimes they just, like, gave up on you, like, as a lost cause. Well, because okay. the
1: whole thing with the reservations is that, is like the, the adults are, are a lost cause already. Yeah. So it's the children we can really target and change. And so at and, a certain point, maybe they just throw them in with the adults.
0: Absolutely. And then, and then there are some cases where students find themselves uh, as refugees in other Native tribes. So, like, they're taken in by a native community who harbors them and, you know, protects them. Which is going to grow like
1: you have kind of set up Mm -hmm. perfectly. Is that that kind of pan, pan pan-Indian, pan-native, what do you want to call it? Pan-Indian. Yeah.
0: Identity. And so, uh, you do see running away. And even kids very little try to run away. Now, obviously, the little ones don't always get very far. You know, most of them are sent back to the schools. But, yeah. You know, it, it is the, the common way that they, that they resist it. And, and imagine, things must be really bad for you to want to run away 100 miles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. things are, things are got to be bad.
2: That's pretty extreme.
0: And, and
1: you may have learned, like, some English, and, and you might have, you know, more Anglo clothes and Anglo haircut, right? But as you run away, I mean, people are still going to recognize you as not being white, Right, and Mm -hmm. and there would be rewards,
0: you know. Turning in, you know, there'd be reports of a mysterious Indian in the community.
2: I'm sure people knew
0: who belonged in the community. Well, especially
2: like Pennsylvania, like yeah, like mm, in this period of time, like a lot of these communities probably had not interacted with Native American people, like at all. Well, and to think, yeah, this is
1: now this is now the 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 late 1800s, early 1900s, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's it many of those tribes have been. Obliterated already, yeah, right? And and these you are know?
0: You're, you're talking second generation yes. students by the early yeah. 1900s,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so it's kind of the um the the dilution of of culture, right? At
0: that point, I have to imagine that's growing, you yeah, know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so apart from running away, there were other forms of student protest. Um, in 1912, uh, students at Haskell once again organized a petition, and they uh, to close the school, and they sent it to the commissioner of Indian Affairs. Washington DC so they sent it to the Person in charge Uh, Totally ignored uh, the petition Okay Um, But nonetheless that Kind of pushed them to take more aggressive Approaches And I was shocked to learn Of this next Example Um, In Haskell once again because that's kind of my focus They launched a Full scale rebellion What? In 1919 October in the evening, uh, there was a guest speaker at Haskell. And while he was on stage, the students cut the power of the entire <laughs> campus. They cut the power, and they started wrecking havoc. They smashed the light pi- uh, fixtures. They raided the food supply. They just went crazy. Uh, there's wow. reports of the uh, school's principal you know, coming outside because at first I thought it was a technical issue. Then they went outside and see that the campus has lost total power. So it's a riot. I mean, and it's there's a, yeah. a line of young men standing there, and it's recorded that they began to shout to the principal, "quote Let's string him up."
2: Wow. And so, uh, wow.
0: Yeah, and so it's ridiculous. Um, the administration is able to gain control of the situation. Um, there was destruction of school property. Obviously, and that resulted in the expulsion of some of those students. Um, unfortunately, the you know the actions of that rebellion didn't lead to any immediate institutional changes, mm-hmm. but it shows you the kind of the lengths that these students are willing to go because right. uh, they're fed up with with how things are going. And and you talked
1: about how what a hodgepodge of, of different tribes these student bodies were, and the fact that there was this was a, this proved to be a unifying cause for them. Mm-hmm despite all their differences. Yeah, well.
0: So that was 1919, and and it's in the 1920s that we're going to see a change um, in Native American policies at the federal level that's going to then uh, obviously impact the schools themselves as we have this self-determination movement. Mm. Um, uh, So we have... There are two main movements that we're going to look at here in a moment. The Indian reorganization movement okay. that happens. It's also known as the Indian New Deal. Okay. Um, that's going to happen in the early 1930s. And then the Indian self-determination movement, uh, which we've mentioned before. So self-determination is mainly going to focus on uh, self-government, okay. you know, allowing native peoples to take control of their, of their lives. And so those two mo- uh, movements are... Uh, kind of on the uh, on the horizon but before we get there I want to once again look at an event that happened at Haskell um, that I feel like is a precursor to those two movements and that is the 1926 Haskell homecoming Um, otherwise known as quote the biggest powwow in history Uh, Ethan you mentioned football
2: yeah
0: you know and in the 1920s uh, 1920s when the NFL you know, was established, and right. so there's now professional football right. in uh, the United States. And before that, you know, football was a common sport at the collegiate level. And, you know, football was brought to the Indian boarding schools. You know, students quickly, you know, young male students quickly uh, adapted to it, became very involved. And the Haskell football team in the 1920s particularly particularly became a very dominant
2: football team better than notre dame better than michigan i'm looking at it right now Mm this oh nice now it's
0: important to note: carlisle carlisle was you know the first indian boarding school but also was kind of the premier football program Mm -hmm. i mean you think of wait did did they play like collegiate yeah wow they played legit collegiate teams um who's who's the most famous native american football player jim thorpe jim thorpe you know jim thorpe went to uh carlisle Mm -hmm. he also went to haskell um but it's important to note that in nineteen, I think nineteen eighteen or nineteen nineteen, Carlisle closes. You know, uh, hmm. they close the school. Uh, by this time, Richard Pratt is no longer involved um, in Indian education, but they close Carlisle uh, because they want the barracks back for World War One, uh, and so that's so kind of the excuse that they use. And Carlisle closes, but Haskell remains. And it's at this point that Haskell not only takes uh, precedent. And dominance of Indian education but also Indian football. So, wow. so was Jim Thorpe at Carlisle before and then moves to? I have to look I think I think he started at high school. Okay and then and moved went to... to Carlisle. Okay but it may be flipped. I, but, but I have to imagine. He's I,
1: more famous for playing football at Carlisle. At Carlisle. I have to imagine he was certainly recruited because he's such a dominant mm-hmm.
2: force so at haskell there was a fullback who was irish and cherokee named Maze mclean and he set a single season record for 38 rushing touchdowns and it's never been broken wow at the collegiate level uh, yeah what a name impressive. first of all right That's impressive. Yeah. he said
1: Maze. Yeah.
2: mc M- he set a single game scoring record with 55 points against wichita state
0: wow, wow. wichita state hey all- right. alma mater
2: right <laughs> so uh sorry little i was i was searching no, as you were talking no, about that's, it. that's fascinating, fascinating.
0: Yeah. so yeah in the 20s haskell football is kind of the premier wow native american football um as ethan mentioned they did go up against you know some big name teams uh they were able to win some of those games but it comes down to in the 1920s uh just like in collegiate institutions today sports have kind of taken a precedent over academics in some cases sure yeah and so it was the same here and uh haskell wanted to build a stadium and one way that they funded this stadium was through native american communities uh specifically the the civilized tribes of oklahoma yeah you know like the cherokee and the choctaw who were very wealthy tribes because their reservations had access to natural gases and things like that and so uh they went on You know, tours down to Oklahoma where they would do scrimmages uh, and fundraise for money. And there's actually an example of uh, the Haskell Haskell football team playing a professional football team. I think was from Kansas City uh, at the time. uh, Wow. (laughs) Which was totally against collegiate rules. Sure. uh, But the Haskell team won. They beat the professionals. Wow. And... uh, (laughs) they they raised enough money to build a stadium that was much larger than they initially planned and so in 1926 the homecoming uh was the very first homecoming at at haskell but it also served as a way to showcase to those native uh donors yeah of what their money went to sure and so uh during that october weekend more than 1600 american indians from throughout the west came to lawrence kansas to partake in this uh this these festivities, um, they uh, they they set up camp, you know, outside of of outside of Lawrence, and uh, people who wrote about the experience talked about these these Indian village as it was called with the tepees. Uh, they dined on buffalo, which you know, right? They they, they brought a buffalo, they killed it. Yeah, uh, no small act. There wasn't a lot of buffalo, so they also supplemented it with beef and squaw bread, which. I haven't looked into that. What that is, but uh... let me see what I can do.
1: <laughs> Squaw, bread.
2: So, Squaw seeing, bread. so you're seeing.
0: So you're seeing these. Huh. Uh, these. You're seeing aspects of Native American culture being kind of celebrated, right?
2: Is that like fry bread?
1: <laughs> now, yes. Yeah, so, so you are seeing them. Them use kind of their image, mm-hmm. which has think back to the wild west shows whatever right like like certainly or even like the mascots even for for your master thesis right but they're using that image to benefit themselves like there's a market for it so Absolutely. so let's use it to generate something for our school
0: and it, it is important to note that this this is obviously being organized by haskell and those in charge um and and the student uh, government as well um, so, so, football became very popular, as we mentioned. It became an outlet to showcase resistance to the dominant society. I mean, it become very popular with surrounding Native communities. And so, you can really see the effects of assimilation on the crowd. Um, if you specifically look at the Montana Blackfoot delegation, um, so within the crowd, a lot of the na- Native people uh, who attended had gone to Indian boarding schools themselves. Okay. They had assimilated, you know, they were wearing. Mainstream clothing, sure, things like that. But the Montana Blackfoot arrived in their traditional regalia. You know, the full headdresses and all. Um and during the homecoming they danced their tribal dances. Which is super significant. Yeah. Because tribal yeah. dancing had been one of the things that the yeah, government allowed to do. had basically tried to eradicate
1: it had been banned right it was yeah. illegal
0: right and so this they is were a school allowed.
1: homecoming celebration mm-hmm.
2: this is not supposed to be happening
1: i knew at this time there were like wow. um basically like underground like speakeasies for native american youth but it was about dancing like they would like they would have like a secret meeting place so they could like perform their you really know. yeah it, it was it, it was very much like it was like you know we're we're going underground to uh, So there was this whole, like, underground market of, especially, like, fancy dancing, which is really, like, well, like the, the guy we had come to our high school yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. who did
1: that really. So, like, that, that's an example of, of one of the dance styles that was popularized during this time from the underground, like, dance circuit
0: um, during this time. That's fascinating. Yeah. And how was that received? Really well. Wow. I mean, you think about it, there's 1,600 natives there. There's also thousands of white spec- uh, spectators as well. Now, the white spectators were obviously both shocked and entertained. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's feeding into, once again, that idea of the white man's Indian that you mentioned. Right. Yeah. You know, they are giving them the show that they expected to see. It's really taken hold by the mm-hmm. 20s. Right. right. But yeah. it's very just, just allowing yeah. them to be above ground doing this um, at a school-sanctioned event yeah. that had spent the, the prior 40 years... <laughs> trying to eradicate these same things that they're doing well and, and
1: i know when we went to the museum and we, and we talked about this on our on our on our uh fireside chat a little bit but like it was really interesting when we went through the exhibit because while these schools were so much about a- pushing assimilation to white culture their mascots would be you know the braves the mm-hmm. warriors you know the the chiefs the you indian, know yeah. the indian right um i found something on squad red um this is from vice So it's a real thing. Uh, Supposedly, it's a rye and molasses bread first developed by German pioneers in the 1800s, and they used Native American bread for inspiration. Um, And apparently, they took, like, Native American recipes and substituted rye, Hmm. which came from, like, Europe. Interesting. And so... And apparently, like, there's some controversy on... Like now, this is like a 2016 article. If it's like, if you can make it and call it swab bread, or if that's like appropriation, um, I've never heard of that before.
2: Me neither. So heard yeah, it that's, either. that's, no, that's what I'm like. Well, I didn't know if it like fry bread because that's like you know yeah. definitely a thing as well.
0: Right, fry bread for sure. Yeah. So the so the homecoming, you have the dancing, the Montana Blackfoot. They're beating their drums. They're yelling the war uh, the war whoop during, yeah. no, during the game. Whenever you know the Haskell scores their touchdown, so they're they're really getting into it, and so on display is this indigenous culture that had been suppressed the previous three decades, okay. um, and the person to perfectly summarize this is a young man uh, who was president of the student body named William Jacobs, who was the mm. grandson of Chief Sitting Bull. Really, and so wow. uh, William Jacobs gives a speech to the crowd of both white and native spectators. And he summarizes the events as, quote, the greatest drama of Indian life. Hmm. And um, it really must have been great because, like I said, on display for the first time at Haskell is this indigenous culture that had been suppressed. And so I can imagine that many of the students are finally starting to feel connected to the school for the very first time. Sure. Yeah. You know, they can look at the events of their homecoming and see a reflection of their communities.
1: And these young people have their whole lives ahead of them. And so I have to imagine this is kind of a, a foundational moment, right? Of mm. of of this is the community that we've heard from our ancestors about, right? Because at this point, right, we're talking second, maybe third generation mm-hmm. of the boarding school, right? A lot of your, your tribal culture is, has been pushed out,
0: Absolutely. at least
1: discouraged. And so maybe this kind of feels like, uh, you're holding on to a piece of, of what used to be, you know?
0: Absolutely. So I I would say that this event had to have planted some seeds within the student population. Um, now, obviously, the fact that the school allowed this to happen in the first place shows yeah. a little bit of changes Absolutely. in terms of politics. And so this happens really uh, progressively with the 1932 election of FDR, okay. you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, because Roosevelt appoints a man named John Collier as the commissioner of Indian affairs. Mm-hmm. And John Collier was a very sympathetic man to Native American, to the Native American cause. Okay. And he was totally against assimilation. Wow! Um, prior to being commissioner of Indian affairs, he had spent the 1920s uh, fighting for American Indian rights specifically lobbying for the overturn of the dawes act so this was a very probably a controversial appointment absolutely you know uh especially at this time in the 1930s right yeah and so he had spent the 1920s uh you know as a progressive which you know (laughs) you see the the evolution of progressives from richard pratt to john collier sure um i believe he went and he uh he first got into this by observing i believe it was the pueblo and that's what really got him into, uh, into Indian rights. But, you know, he lobbied to overturn the Dawes Act, which we, which we mentioned divided tribal lands for individual allotments. Yeah. Um, and so it's during his appointment from 1933 to 1945 under FDR that we see uh, the shift of the schools go from assimilation yeah. to a more um, what they call Indian reorganization. And so in 1934, uh, Congress passes the Indian Reorganization Act, also Mm. referred to as the IRA, but most commonly known as the Indian New Deal. Deal. And what the IRA does, or the Indian New Deal does, is it reorganizes Native tribes into self-governing bodies with a type of quasi-sovereignty. So okay. they're
1: they're not sovereign states, but they do have some say
0: and some control over their own affairs. Okay, uh, they're excluded from raising armies. Uh, they cannot develop their own currency. They can't engage in treaties or trade with a foreign nation. Right. So uh, the,
1: so they're not sovereign, but there is like sort of a quasi a quasi yeah, type sure. of sovereignty,
0: which was revolutionary. You Absol- know, to go back to the yeah. 1871 Appropriations Act, which ended that sovereignty um now it is important to know that the ira did not directly uh address government boarding schools but the effect of the legislation on native communities uh, did overflow into indian education okay um we see during this time a shift uh in the reorganization of tribal society and you see the development of community day schools so you see the you see the development of schools on reservations okay um which are going to become more popular than the boarding schools simply because uh, children could remain at home in the comfort of and influence of their families. So by 1941, more American Indian children were attending day schools, and they outnumbered the boarding schools 228 to 49. Wow. So by 1941, there were only 49 boarding schools. So So because
1: there's less of a demand, so they they weren't... um closed intentionally necessarily but there was kind of this this there was a shift shift
0: right okay and so uh collier does make it part of his agenda to close the boarding schools though this guy is uh, quite the reformer yeah i mean really and so we talked about how carlisle had already closed way before this okay and haskell was on the chopping block okay um now unfortunately there was still a demand for these boarding schools and so collier doesn't he doesn't close them all Haskell is going to remain in operation, but albeit with a different mission, okay? Wow. It's no longer assimilation.
2: Okay.
1: Which, and I so, mean, at this point, I mean,
0: this has been a long time coming. It's 50 years coming, right? Absolutely. It's, you know, and uh, we know as, as teachers, you know, it is important for our students to feel connected to the school. Yeah. That's why I think the Haskell homecoming was super important yeah. because I think for the first time, many of these... Many of these students felt connected. So the best way for students to feel connected to the school, um, I think it comes down to the curriculum. You sure. know, they got to feel like they're represented in what they're learning. Sure. But also the leaders. You know, They got to mm. see themselves reflected in the people in charge. Right. Uh, this is obviously two things that were definitely missing during the early years of Absolutely. the boarding schools. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the curriculum um, that was taught to them, the history was of a relegated victimized history of native peoples being conquered right and then yeah. Uh, saved yeah as the other culture civilized them right. so absolutely definitely not a positive message being being sent um, to the students and then in terms of leaders you know most native people are being taught bossed around by anglo anglo you know anglo american right. individuals so certainly no no or little native representation at that level absolutely and so you start to see this change during this period of the 20s and the 30s um as part of the as part of the education reforming sought to institute a curriculum that was more suited to the needs of native children okay so you start to see um education that focuses on native history you start to see classes that are more representative of native culture, well, you know, things that deal with, you know, native weaving and, 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 you know, native languages. Now is,
1: is this the initiative that I forgot the name of the Collier, John Collier. So is this very much
0: what he wants to see done? Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, and, and the progressives along with him sure. during that time of Indian reorganization. Um, so the curriculum, promoted connections of indigenous uh representation and population and the second part is is that is that representation um at haskell we see leadership opportunities increase for indigenous peoples uh, specifically graduates andrew i think you mentioned this in part one uh, you're going to start see graduates from the schools stick around as Mm. faculty Hmm. as staff and in some cases as teachers Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Esther Horn yeah. uh, in part one, you know a student at Haskell who talked about this Pan-Indian identity. She writes in her memoirs uh, about her positive attitudes toward the schools because she specifically mentions her relationship with two teachers, uh, a woman named Ella uh, Deloria, who was a Dakota Sioux, okay. and another woman Ruth Muskrat Bronson, who's Cherokee. okay. Um, and so these were two women who were teachers. Uh, she mentioned specifically their sense of humor mm-hmm. and the lessons they taught her, quote, not to believe that everything we learned was truth.
2: Wow. So,
0: so there's definitely some life lessons being taught there. So it, and it's, those connections. St- it's still the same
1: name, right? still the same school, but it, it, very different here. This really is a
0: huge shift. Yeah. You, you're seeing that reflection. Um, and so the inclusion of American Indians as teachers provided a, a great amount of comfortability. And also connectiveness for students um, that had been lacking now those are teachers right if, if you want change you need change from the very top sure and we see this at haskell with the appointment of a man named henry roe cloud uh he becomes the school's first american indian superintendent wow in 1933 very 33 cool. yeah now us being from kansas and i'll just say it, being from wichita uh, we have a connection to Henry Rowe Cloud. There's a Cloud Elementary,
2: okay. um, named wow. after him. Know and that. his
0: connection to Wichita is because he establishes uh, the the nation's first college preparatory school for Native Americans right here in Wichita, called the Rowe Indian Institute. Really? It was actually located uh, across from Wichita State. Uh, wow. And he served as as its president from 1915 to 1931. And the whole purpose was uh, focusing on self-sufficiency, you know, teaching Native uh, students to be self-sufficient through education. Um, So Cloud was a part of the Winnebago Nation of Nebraska. Uh, He was one of the nation's leading American activists and education reformers. (laughs) He was the first Native American to graduate from Yale. Hmm. So he was a big deal. Uh, He had aspirations himself to be Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Unfortunately, that was not something that he ever accomplished. But in the words of FDR, he was the most important Native American of his time. Wow. And I was shocked not to know this. Um, no I, idea. I briefly <laughs> recall during my undergrad, I, I took a, a class over Wichita, a Wichita history class. And I, f- I think this is what my professor was referring to. Because I always thought that there was an Indian boarding school by Wichita State. Hmm. I but had it no wasn't It was a it was a preparatory school. A preparatory school. His
2: wiki doesn't even mention anything about that. Yeah, I, I had to do some to
0: deep dive research wow. to find that. Wow. Um, so so cloud becomes the superintendent um, at Haskell. You know he he's he's seen for his his uh, exploits and his his work that he did at the Roe Indian Institute. Um, but he's also a well known figure because if you remember that 1928 Miriam report. Yeah. Which talked about how Native children were six times more likely to die mm-hmm. at boarding schools. He was one of the co authors of that. Oh, he's, and so me,
1: he's been in this a long time. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So uh, John Collier appoints him as superintendent of school, and he's taking all of this experience that he's learned and he's bringing that to the school. Um, and so now that he's in charge, he be- immediately begins to transform the curriculum to emphasize Native culture. And so how he does this, first off, he fires the football coach. So think about this. In 1933, you're talking a decade removed from football being so popular. at yeah. He fires the coach. Wow. He doesn't want them to focus on football. Um, he severs the ties with the Kansas National Guard. You know, oh. get rid of that militaristic approach. Uh, he focuses on uh, the students themselves and honoring their culture. It's breaking the wheel man He's, so uh, for the first time in 47 years the emphasis at haskell is not on assimilation it's on the students themselves wow. through that self-sufficiency this wow. is such a a huge change i mean just it's it's, it's crazy i
1: mean yeah. it's and now uh, now him being the first superintendent
0: did that kind of catch on across the country i didn't look at others uh but I do know he's not the last at okay. Haskell. Okay. Um, I know that there will be others after him. Um, but I did not look at others. I would assume so. Okay. Um, but once again, you know, Haskell is kind of the premier. Sure. At the
1: time. And, and so maybe that tells us part of our answer. If, if they're kind of the go-to school and that's the model, right. Mm-hmm. You have to imagine there's others that are, that are Adopting taking influence them. from that. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, He's only superintendent of Haskell for two years, okay. which is really short. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, during his time there, he made the school a more inclusive place, uh, provided some autonomy, some self-governing um, to the community that was uh, being implemented by Commissioner John Collier's Indian reorganization. Hmm. Um, and so once again, during this, this period of the New Deal in the 1930s, um, the change of the boarding schools goes away from assimilation Towards this path of self-determination, which, as I mentioned, was a movement to achieve Native American autonomy um, in all aspects of tri- tribal life, including government and education. However, the fulfillment of that self-determination would take another thirty years to accomplish, because after FDR's death, you know, and the the uh, transition to the Truman presidency, sure, obviously there's different appointments, right? And so John Collier is no longer a part of. Of the uh, the BIA, and so uh, in the '40s and the '50s, there's a return to assimilation, but under a new name known as termination.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, really, really sketchy name. So let me elaborate. Yeah. Why the change? <laughs> so there was just a, from my understanding, following World War II... Mm-hmm. the idea was that native people no longer needed to be assimilated in the ways that they were there was the idea that there was there there was no longer a need for this self-government but what they needed was total assimilation let's get them into mainstream society
2: so there's this pendulum swing Yeah. So it was in the 50s from like 40s cool and year, the 50s, yeah. and then post-world war ii it goes back to this hardcore now in the 50s you huh. do
1: see kind of you know with the rise of the cold war you do you do see a really huge spike not only in the role of the government but also kind of a demand for censorship and social conformity um, as reaction to the Cold War and there's kind of like you know good American looks and talks and praise like this you know, they wear clothes like this they have yeah. hair like this so I don't know if that's connected to it but it, it, it seems like a pendulum shift like you
0: said absolutely because if you remember during the early years the ideas were was to assimilate them but they would still be on their reservations Right now, the movement is no. They need to be moved into total assimilation into mainstream society, uh, you know, bringing them to urban life. Yeah, we just need to once it, we they're really trying to just kill the Indian, right? Totally kill Native culture. They need to be American. This is
1: such a, a shift back. I mean, are, are there are there specific policies that this is tied to?
0: Um. There are. Um, there are. Um, i don't have any listed but there was policies that um, that closed certain reservations okay um
2: as a way to move native peoples to cities um so part of the indian new deal was kind of giving some land back to native american tribes and helping them kind of you know get that sovereignty mm-hmm. back or that partial sovereignty now in the 50s that's you kind of going backwards
0: back. yeah, wow. yeah it's, it's quite the change um and may- maybe Collier's policies were too radical for some. Sure. You know, you do see in history when when there is a lot of progress that's happened, you know, the next administration yeah. immediately starts to, it. to change and, that. And, and
1: you think about how how uh, liberal in scope of American history mm-hmm. FDR's general administration was. And part of that's a reaction to what's happening, like the Great Depression and stuff. But then certainly on both sides of the aisle, after that, you have pretty conservative candidates for office on both the democratic and Republican side. So I think you're right. Maybe kind of, a, I um, I guess to quote
0: Harding, right. A return to normalcy. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So world war two was, was pretty impactful, obviously for all involved. We know the role native Americans played as, you know, co-talkers. Um, and after world war two, native tribes began to prioritize education. Um, You know, before there was a lot of resistance to it Uh. in the schools. But I think the history that they saw under, you know, people like Henry Roe Cloud and and that self-determination, as well as their experiences during the war, you know, they're coming back and they're realizing that Native education is super important. And so uh, one of the authors I looked at, her name was Margaret Connell, and I'm going to butcher her last name. I think it's Shaz. It's S.Z a s z uh she points out that the termination period produced american indian leaders who through their desire to gain control of education learned to combat the political power structures of the time Mm. and so this pendulum swing back to to assimilation to termination Mm. uh, definitely created a lot of native american activists and um
2: well, once you've given like the you know this is kind of a mm-hmm. universal things like when you give people kind of that freedom back it's hard then to take it away again yeah like it's hard you to put can't it, do that it's hard
1: to put it back well and you think if this is 40s and 50s you think late 60s 70s that's the american indian movement yep and even
0: during that time you have the african-american yep. civil rights movement True. which for those uh, american indian movements was kind of a symbol and so uh in order to combat those political structures, American Indian leaders are watching the civil rights movement. They're watching Dr. King, they're watching Malcolm X, they're watching the Black Panthers and how they're dealing with the US government for their own self-determination. And so as Andrew, you mentioned, this is going to lead to the American Indian movement, otherwise known as AIM or AIM, which is going to become kind of the most dominant uh, it was formed in 1968. Um, I know a lot of these leaders of the AIM movement. Um, they had been pushed off of their reservations during termination, you know, forced into these urban settings, and then received no support. And so all the inequalities that they experienced led to this unifying factor: that the pan of urban, the, the pan Indian, Indian yeah. And so um, in, eight, in 1968, they form. Um, for native civil rights and they gained a lot of notoriety for their for their tactics right uh specifically the seizure of alcatraz island yep mm-hmm. um which they held for a few years yeah um they also seized the bia the bureau of indian yep. affairs headquarters in dc um where they went they wanted to negotiate with uh president nixon at the time uh he refused to meet with them and this was right before the uh, 1972 election. Right. And so they they took control of the BIA headquarters, caused a huge scene. Uh, the government actually paid them to leave. To leave. Uh, which well, they eventually it, did. It's, it's
1: their own march on Washington, right? Yeah. It's the, 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 tra- uh, the Trail of... Trail bro- of Treaties. Trail of Broken Treaties. Broken Treaties, yeah. yeah.
0: And so, the, yeah, they marched uh, from the west coast to D.C., gathering more tribes along the way. And then obvi- and then the other... The other uh, seizure, which is probably their most uh, radical, was the seizure of the village of Wounded Knee yeah. on the Pine Ridge mm. Reservation, yep. Yep. which yep. led to armed conflicts and deaths of uh, both Native people and uh, police. And, and, and subsequent arrests of many
1: of mm-hmm. the uh, the members, some of which are still in jail. Uh, Leonard Peltier mm-hmm. being the,
0: the most famous, right? Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, so the importance of the American Indian movement was the notoriety, okay? They, they got their message. They got their voice out there. The world was listening. The country was listening. And more importantly, Richard Nixon was listening. Um, you know, Richard Nixon's president. And uh, he, he's paying attention to, uh, to this movement. And, and I want to go back just a minute because I got ahead of myself. But the the tie between the AIM movement and Indian education is part of their policy was educational. Um, They Mm. wanted uh, a creation of an Indian cultural and education center. Mm -hmm. That's what they wanted to turn Alcatraz into. They wanted to turn it into uh, an education center. They wanted an increase in classes over Indian culture and history. And they Mm. wanted increased involvement of American Indians in school administrations. That was part uh, of their platform
1: you mentioned they pull inspiration from like the black power like the black panthers mm-hmm. like think the the black panthers 10 point program one of them is like we not only want good equitable education taught by people who look like mm-hmm. us but also we want a curriculum that teaches about our role in history not just as as victims but as
0: as 3d people absolutely yes. and and aim specifically draws a lot of inspiration from the black panthers And so, like I said, Richard Nixon is listening, um, especially with the takeover of uh, the BIA headquarters. And uh, it's through the Nixon administration that we see the final shift from the termination period Mm -hmm. to the self-determination period. And Richard Nixon said the following. So he says, quote, it is a it is long past time that the Indian policies of the federal government began to recognize and build upon The capacities and insights of the indian people the time has come to break decisively with the past and to create the conditions for a new era in which the indian future is determined by indian acts and indian decisions and so with richard nixon we have the official development of the self-determination period yeah and so there are two major legislations uh, and laws that are passed uh, during the Nixon administration and the Ford administration that followed Uh, the first is called the Indian self determination um, law which was passed uh, sorry it was called the Indian Education Act of 1972 known as the IEA this was a milestone it provided the opportunity for Indian boarding schools and any school that had at least 10 indigenous students to receive federal funding for supplemental programs that met the needs of students. So we're talking about extra funding for inclusive uh, curriculum, for bilingual and cultural relevant stuff as well. And so, so they're, they're really being heard here because is that
1: same year. I mean, this is,
0: yeah. yeah this is right after you know uh, the seizure of the BIA. And so in addition to that, to, to that funding, um, in order to receive that funding, they had to include Native parents and communities wow. in the designing of those uh, programs. So stakeholders, right? Yeah, and so it's for the first time you see uh, you see Native communities taking ownership of these schools. Um, it also established the National Advisory Council on Indian Education, which was a fifteen-person group that consisted of members from the tribes and organizations. Mm. They met annually and reported to the federal government the state of Indian education. Wow. Um, so that, uh, once again, was the Indian Education Act of 1972, once again, allowing them to claim ownership. Um, the other main piece of legislation in this Indian self-determination movement happened in 1975. So this is the Gerald Ford administration. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, this, this passage, this law, it's a really long name. It's called the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act known as the ISDEAA. Yeah. Um, this act mm-hmm. provided tribes with the ability to negotiate contracts directly with the federal government. Okay. And so this allowed them to receive administration authority over their own programs, okay. such as schools. So, they're, wow. so they're, they still have that quasi
1: sovereignty, but it, it is fleshing out kind of what their powers are. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. The gray areas are becoming less gray. I'm sure there's still a lot of gray areas. Yeah, sure,
1: right. But no, that's a great point.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so that that sovereignty that it existed uh, during the 1870s, you're starting to see that come back a little right. bit. Um, I, I have to imagine you
1: talked about the uh, what was it, the greatest what, what was the the homecoming called the the, the nickname greatest powwow. In, in a way, you're kind of seeing the 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 culmination of 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 like of now. It's like there has to be this building pride of like. The school you, the Indian school you attend, is being shaped by your community.
0: Absolutely. Right? And so that there has to be, like, like I said, pride in that. Mm-hmm. You know, the curriculum is now more inclusive. Right. You know, you you have classes that focus on, you know, native languages. Right. And teaching those languages, and so there there has to be that pride, that ownership that is that is coming from this. Okay, so the uh, Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act has been passed. Um, there's a man named W. Ron Allen. He was chairman of the Jamestown Sakalum tribe. You probably butchered that. Uh, S apostrophe K L A L L A M, a tribe which was based in Washington State. Uh, he reflects on the passage of ISDEAA. He declares, "We took charge of our own destinies. We are now capable of meeting our community's needs more effectively than any other government." Wow. Wow. And so you now see indigenous communities in possession of more control within the boarding school systems Mm. and this brings us to the end of of my research Um, and so we can see that the attitudes of native communities have changed uh, to support the operation of these schools as communities gain control of indian education through that self-determination movement of the 1920 uh, of the 20th century Um, communities became more willing participants and supporters of the government boarding schools that had previously sought to eradicate their cultures, right? Yeah. Uh, Due to uh, indigenous teachers, the creating of native relevant curriculum, and just the inclusion of communities as well. Um, And so during the mission of self-determination, we see many of these schools transform from their elementary, military, and industrial origins into accredited institutions of both secondary and post-secondary education. Mm. Um, so there's a need in indigenous communities and there's a desire for this education. So once again, narrowing in on Haskell, um, which remember was one of the earliest Bureau of Indian Affairs school schools, um, it transforms into to what is known today as the Haskell Indian Nations University which is one of the nation's leading four-year institutions for indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I believe, uh,
2: like, tuition's free. Mm-hmm. If you're, yeah, I think
1: federal it, government. I looked it up. The, the, the average tuition paid is, like, $450 or something. Yeah, yeah so it's, you know, very affordable comparatively.
0: And it's, it's, it, it is a university. There are still ties to the BIA. Um, but from my knowledge, you know, a lot of the professors are Native American. You know, those in charge are Native American. And so you're seeing that taking control of, of those schools. Um, you see a number of Indian boarding schools decline during the self-determination period. Okay. You're seeing John Collier's you know, mission be accomplished. Mm. Uh, part of that is uh, a transition to those, uh, to those on-reservation day schools. Yeah. Those continue to grow. But you also just see the transition of boarding schools into tribal universities. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it is important to notice, though, that the continued affiliation within these schools, uh, across multiple generations of Indigenous families, has to prove that those attitudes have changed. You know, there yeah. are families who have attended high school for many like, generations. Generational, yeah. And so, to continue those those traditions, has to show that those families are now, you know, involved or supportive of those right. schools. And so. I want to leave us with this, that throughout the late 20th and early 21st centuries, American Indian communities continue to send their, their children to the BIE boarding schools and tribal universities, not to kill the Indian, as was once the goal, but instead to save the Indian through the education of their culture, as well as the education of mainstream society of which Native peoples are a part of.
2: Mm.
1: It's Beautiful. Wow. I've
0: learned so much this these
1: uh Dude. part 1 and part 2. Um I, I I think it's something that everybody needs to be aware of. Um I think it's a well, you know, like uh, the, the what is that? The, that series called America the Story of Us, right? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a part of us that yeah. that we need to all be be aware of. Um the pendulum swings throughout Throughout this story yeah. are are so drastic. That's really one of the things that's really I'm still kind of thinking through that.
0: Yeah, that shift from uh from kind of Indian reorganization to termination yeah. to self determination is is really interesting. It's one that I had never heard of before. Yeah. I feel like I've learned a lot about just Native American policy in general. Sure. That's one that I still don't quite understand. I think I know as a group here we were trying to question like why. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not entirely. You know known i think it comes down to maybe resentment of the progressiveness of john collier uh mixed with the effects of world war ii mm. but i also think it's important to notate that there is still a lot of negative feelings towards the boarding schools um in regards to the history of the early early yeah. years but To know that there are still boarding schools, government-funded. I'm sure there's resentment against those schools, regardless of whether Native communities are in charge of them or not. Or not, yeah, sure.
2: Sure. But surely it's under a completely different pretense today. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, like you just said, you know, I know there's, there's a lot of different opinions about the schools that are around today, but I think it's that story of how something that, the origins are so I can't even think of a word to describe it
0: so adverse other than
2: wrong (laughs) just so just so so um adverse yeah so um
0: to take something so negative to take that and and for that to
2: become something and that's something when I when I was doing research I was finding a lot of many schools on reservations their mascots were like Indians or Redskins I'm like wait you're but you get to choose your mascot, and the the idea is like, yeah, and like we own that now. We own it. Oh, yeah. And so, kind of like with boarding schools, it's like you take something that was used against you, and you're able to now turn it into something else. I I think that's that those kind of stories and narratives and yeah. history are just they leave me speechless.
1: Well, it's it's empowerment that um that book you mm. referenced uh David Truer Truer Tr- Tr- how, how do you say his name? Yeah.
0: Truer. Truer is this
1: Truer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um but but his book is called, do you remember the, the title? The Heartbeat
0: of Wounded Knee.
1: And and the reason he chose to call it that is because there's a very famous book that a lot of people read before that is is it Bury My Heart? Yeah, yeah Bury I, I My wounded Heart. Knee. And a lot of people are aware of that one, not this new one, and part of his lens that that he looks through is kind of like if we only see native americans as victims we're kind of locking them into this vestige of this of the past this victimhood there's no ability to progress to or or to take something back or to empower they're just locked into this you know this identity right yeah and so i i love that um i think what's so powerful about this two-part series is like the movement from within to make things better Um, And I think it it shows such strength of these communities to, despite all of the assimilation and all of the tactics and all of the corruption uh, from the government, that despite that, they are able to push to reclaim the schools for their people. I think that's a powerful story.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I know in our class that Andrew and I just took, our professor, Ned Blackhawk, you know, one of the famous and probably one of the leading Native American Absolutely. Uh, experts, he was he was our uh, our lead professor, and in some of our our sessions with him, he he mentioned that the theme of our entire class was to kind of shift away from that from that uh, common narrative of Native American history being a victimized history, right. and focusing on the themes of you know resiliency, right. you know being able to overcome the challenges, and so I think that the boarding schools is a Perfect example, yeah, of that of that narrative of that theme of like you said, Ethan, taking something that was super negative and, and turning it into something positive, at least for their community. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's a perfect way to, to close this out. I yeah. couldn't say it better myself. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Jonathan, thank you for putting this together, man. It's right. uh, it was, the pleasure is all mine. It was, it Steve, was, your
2: hard work and research is evident, and I think very clear. You've laid it out in a very helpful way, enlightening way. I've learned a lot I'm, I know our listeners have learned a lot too absolutely well this has been another uh, episode
1: of making history dope again uh, make sure you like us on, on Facebook on Instagram uh, follow us on Twitter you can find our merch leave a review
2: yeah we, yeah we want we want to know what you guys think start a dialogue you yeah, know absolutely uh, yeah.
1: w- one, one thing I'll say uh, for for people who made it this far into our episode is uh, next semester. Uh, Jonathan and I are taking a class. What's it called? President. I think it's
0: uh, Presidents and the Press. So it's it's com- it's mm. looking at throughout
1: the American presidency, what has the the role of the press been throughout various presidencies? Yeah, and so I
0: think kind of the relationship between the two, right? And how
1: how they work together or against each other. Um, and so so let us know if you made it this far. Maybe who should we focus on? You know, we're gonna have to pick pretty early in this class who we want to do research on. What presidency? What period? And so. Let us know who we should focus on. What what president mm. do you want to know? Uh, you know, How did the press deal with him? Let us
0: know. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Jonathan, you did
0: all this hard work. Do you want to lead us out? All right. So thank you, everyone, once again, for tuning in to another episode of Make History Dope Again. As always, stay safe, stay sane, wear a mask. Thanks, guys.